Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Hey, we sang just a minute ago about the goodness of God and the trust we have in God. You might have gone, wow, we repeated that. You are good a lot. But you know what? It is, it is so true. Have you ever considered the fact that what is at stake in so much of our faith is actually God's goodness? If God isn't good, then we have nothing to stand on. And when, when uh, Satan tempted Eve in the garden, he was actually coming at God on this issue. He was, he was accusing God of, is, his, is he really good? Is he holding out on you on something? And uh, really at the core of so many of our sins is the question of, I believe this is good and not God. That God actually is good. It's in his character. It's who he is. And so I praise God for that. Sometimes uh, worship is an act of sacrifice. You might go, my whole world fell apart. It doesn't feel like God is good, but I'm declaring him good. I'm saying he, that is actually who he is. And I'm holding on to that today. And so I pray as we sing that, that that would be our prayer as a church. Because I know some of you are going through some tough things these days. And uh, as you hold on to the character of God, as you hold on to who he is, I trust that that's encouraging to you and, and uh, give you support and encouragement in your faith. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. You can turn to John 14 after we pray here. God, this morning... We are glad to come before your word, but we know it's going to change us. It's actually going to come at us today a little bit. It's going to hit us in the heart in a spot that, uh, that is deep and sensitive sometimes. But God, we expose ourselves to you to allow your word because it is true, because it is the way we allow it to see inside of us. And so, Lord, right now, would you soften us and tenderize us to hear from you? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the last week of going through this summer series called Seek. And uh, as we came into this earlier this summer, we started looking at the I Am statements in the book of John. And so today we're in John chapter 14. It's the perfect place for us to end because it's going to help us figure out where we're at and give us some direction for where we might go. It's going to look at life in this way because it looks at the fact that we live in the here and now. What Jesus did on the cross is past tense, although it is very real to us today. And what he's going to do in the future in his return in bringing us to be with him is a future tense thing. But where am I today? And it's going to help us put ourselves in that place and understand what to do and how to hold on to some things in that. Over these last weeks, we've looked at the different I am statements of Jesus from the book of John, and they're on the screen right now. You can see them there. We actually started with the last one and then went back to the beginning and, and worked through them because that last one, Abide in Me, um, was the, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. That one is such a foundational piece for us when it came to this series. And so today, here we come back to one of these I am statements. And one person said about the I am statements that those statements provide stepping stones of faith to believe he is the Son of God, which is really the purpose of the book of John, that we would believe, that our faith would be solid and stand on him, not in a belief that is just purely a mental 
a grasp, but that is a life grasp, that it's experiential in who we are. And so we come to John chapter 14, and let's look at that today together. We're going to read the first seven verses of it. This is Jesus' words at the beginning. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you to go... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, maybe where, sorry, I'm really goofing this up. That where I am, you may be also, so that we could go be with him. And you know the way to where I am going. He makes that statement. And then look at Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do, you do know him and have seen him, meaning you have seen him in me. When you were a kid, you probably had some vivid memories that still stand in your memory and even if you're a young kid, you probably have some of these. But those early memories, some of them are good and some of them are traumatic. Do you remember the first time you got lost? I was in a zoo in Chicago, a large zoo. And I was standing in an area that was round. I still can picture this with wooden fence in front of me. And I was standing up against the fence watching the zebras. My whole family, I was one of five kids, my whole family's there, my parents are there, and we're looking at the zebras, and I was just enthralled by it. And I was into this and zoned in on on what they were doing, and after a few minutes, I turned around, and everybody was gone. My whole family was gone. And I had that panic, and I ran out, and I started looking around, and they were nowhere to be seen. And the feeling, that crushing feeling came over me of, I'm going to die in the zoo. I'm going to have to live here. They're gone. How am I going to get home? It was probably no more than about 30 seconds, and my dad came walking back. But a lot can go through your mind in a short amount of time like that, right? And I spent the rest of the day on my dad's shoulders, not to be lost again. Had to stay with them from there on. You know, we get lost physically, and we've all been there. But there's an internal lostness that every single one of us hits in moments of life. It may be spiritual. It may be an identity issue. It may be the circumstances of life changed. It may be a crushing blow to whatever you were depending on. It may be a relationship that changed on you. But we hit places in life where there is a disorientation. Even as Christians, we hit those spots. Let me introduce you to a man named Jeff Fisher, and you may recognize that name if you're a football fan. Jeff was an NFL player, and then he spent 22 years as a head coach in the NFL, mostly as a Titans, Tennessee Titans coach. He had some ups and downs in his career. He had some seasons of great success. In fact, he took the Titans to the Super Bowl one year, and then he had other seasons where he had a a losing record. So he has both fans and haters out there. And you may have seen some, some of the uh, videos that went around on the internet as he shared with his team last year that he was being let go. And, but Jeff had an identity crisis in his life, a spot where 
things weren't right because there was a lostness inside of him. Let's watch this video as he describes what happened to him as he went through that. I had this moment in church which I think really, really turned me off. I was seven or eight years old and I was sitting in church we happened to be playing with the sunlight that was coming down through the stained glass window. The Monsignor coming in and down the pew and grabbing us by our, our neck collars and said, I'll deal with you. And at that point, it actually terrified me. It was, it was like, it was kind of a shock. So that's when the journey began. As time went on, I made a transition from a player to a coach. The Sundays are, are emotional and fun. They're pressure-packed. Players are different nowadays. I like them feisty. I like them testy. You have to have individual relationships with each and every player. So I become a parent. One of the more difficult things is the time. You're either going 100 miles an hour, you're asleep, and there's nothing in between. There was something missing, um, but... Um, and in my world, uh, there's never time to figure out what, what is, in fact, missing. I was losing an opportunity to be that dad. And that was difficult for me. The answers weren't there. They just were not there. A few years ago, I, with the help of a friend, uh, drove the stake home. We were out on the farm, my piece of property out there. Just kind of pulled over and happened to pull over on the bridge and had a conversation. He said, do you really honestly believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and your Savior? And it was, yeah. But then it was, do you really believe it? And I said, well, yeah. Because what does that mean? And I paused, and I, I couldn't answer that. And that's when we had the further discussion, and that's where, um, uh, as I guess you would say, that's where I accepted the Lord in my heart for my lifetime on that bridge that day. Not a, not a weird thing. It's not a born again thing. Not a, not, it's not a weird thing. It was a peaceful, really, really cool moment where I just felt I, I was no longer the, the dad anymore. I actually had become a son. And it makes things much easier from a day to day perspective. I can handle those responsibilities because I know that I have a father that's looking after me that uh, has got my best interest at heart. My name is Jeff Fisher, and I am second.
catch that line, I didn't have all the answers. There are a lot of question marks. God did a work in his life, but do you ever find yourself lost and disoriented without the answers, even as a Christian, or maybe not even trusting Christ in your life at this point? Do you find yourself with question marks? Not knowing what to do, where to turn, in a world that has so many voices barking at you, most of those negative, most of those empty promises, a world that's telling you you're not good enough, you're not right, you're not strong enough, you don't have what it takes, you're not worthy, not loved, or that you're not beautiful. And the crushing weight of that sometimes gets us, even as believers, completely disoriented. Well, the artist Damien Hurst recently said this, why do I feel so important when I'm not? Nothing is important, and everything is important. I don't know why I'm here, but I'm glad that I am. I'd rather be here than not. I'm going to die, and I want to live forever, and I can't escape that fact, and I can't let go of that desire. Life sometimes makes us look around and go, where's God in the middle of this and what's this madness all about in this world? What am I going to do? Where do I turn? What really is true? What can I believe? We got heavy really quick, right? We came in and got heavy really quick here, but that scenario is some of what the disciples were facing in John chapter 14. You see, Jesus had called them out of a life a couple of years prior to this. He had called them to leave behind everything that had been stable in their life. And maybe you can relate to this. And he said, come follow me, reorient your life to me, follow me, and there'll be something new and and grand. And he called them into this. And over the years, things were developing and they started to understand this picture of what God was doing. And it started to make sense, they thought, in their minds of what was happening. But maybe they didn't want to hear it. Maybe they couldn't understand it. But Jesus had been dropping these hints along the way that the state of them being with him was not going to be a permanent state. That one day he would die and he'd be away. And so at this point in John chapter 14, it is very closely linked to what's just happened prior to that in the chapter before, and they're, they're in the upper room celebrating the Passover, all the disciples are. And here they are, Jesus has predicted Judas' betraying of him, uh, they've, they've, Jesus has washed their feet, and they've gone through this very meaningful time, this confusing time in some ways, and you can imagine the shock that they have when at the end of that chapter, Jesus begins to again announce this idea that he's going to leave. They put all chips in, and he's going to leave? Do you feel that way sometimes? You put all chips in and he's not here right now. And the disciples are disoriented and they're trying to figure out what to do. They're troubled in spirit. And so Jesus in John 14, 1 says, let not your hearts be troubled. He begins and he comes to a group that trusts him but is disoriented. Maybe that's us today. Can trust him but yet still find ourselves in places of disorientation. And here he begins to speak truth to them. When we are troubled, we begin to look for answers. We begin to find a way to cope. 
we try to find our way to get from here out of it. In, in when we're lost, we would use this word, if you're lost, you want to find your way home, right? Take me home. I want to get out of this situation because I'm lost. Maybe your spirit feels lost today, even if you are a follower of Jesus. This summer, I've used Google Maps more than I ever have used it in the past. We have become so dependent on our phones, haven't we? I mean, if it told me to turn into a pond, I probably would right now. That's how, how mechanical I've gotten with that little thing. But if I tell Google Maps, take me home, it'll find the location of home because I've told it where that is, and it'll just bring me there if I follow it. Now, it's going to look for a location, right? A spot on the map, this house that it's going to bring me to. By the way, little side note, some of you guys prayed us through the sale of our house in Minnesota a couple months back, and it sold, and it's all off our plate. And now we found a house out in Fruta, and uh, God's provided that way too. So we'll be moving fairly soon. Now, this is not a shameless plug to have you guys help me, but <laughs> do you ever read the Babylonian Bee? I thought this was great and so appropriate. Babylonian Bee is kind of like the onion for Christians, okay? It's fake news, made-up stories. That, that if you live in the church culture, you'll, you'll find it hysterical. But it says, bear one another's burdens sermon, suspiciously close to pastor's moving date. That's the title. <laughs> Okay, let me read you part of it. Bear one another's burdens, beloved. An unusually passionate Zaxby reportedly implored his flock as he dove headlong into Galatians 6.2. Let's really live this out. Maybe you can talk to a friend that is struggling or help a beloved individual in your church move their sofa and all their heavy bookshelves. What a great application of this verse. Zaxby is said to have also identified several common burdens individuals struggle with, including insecurity, depression, loneliness, and realizing you're hardly done with packing despite the fact that your current house, you have to move out of your current house in less than a week. Additionally, to really drive home his point, he had asked the congregation to write on a connection card one or two things that they would commit to doing this week in order to bear another's burden. And to drop those cards in the offering plate along with whether or not they were free on Saturday or had a pickup truck available. <laughs> I'm not, I just thought that was funny, being that I'm moving soon into a new home. So if you do want to help, come talk to me. All right. So Google will point me to my house, right? Back on track. That's a rabbit trail. Back on track. Google will get me to my house. It'll be a location. But what Google doesn't know is that house is just a house, It's just a shell, a building. But what makes that home are the people that live in it, right? It's the people that make me want to go back to it. I want to go home because I know my family will be there. That's why that saying, home is where the heart is. And it's in that vein that Jesus begins to comfort his disciples. In effect, he wants them to know how to get home, but first he begins to describe about home. He says in verse 2 of chapter 14, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Heaven. You know, we tend to think as believers this way. Life is hard. Life is a lot of work. But if I can get through my years that God has given me on this earth, I can finally get to heaven, and there's going to be an awesome leather sofa for me to sit on and a big screen TV to sit back and watch. Maybe a mansion for me to live in. 
maybe endless elk hunting that I can partake in. Almost like it's a resort, right? And we think of it as if it's this location. If I can just get to this location, then I'll be comfortable. Well, I don't mean to rain on your parade, but heaven doesn't mean much unless there's a person there. The Christian home is a person, not really a place. I mean, it is a place, a location that we'll go to, and it's grand, but it's more about who's there than it is that I get to go fulfill all my desires there. I will actually fulfill all my desires because they'll be fulfilled in the Father, but it won't be found, I won't be fulfilled in the stuff of heaven. You see, a maturity point, a turning point in the Christian life is the realization that the Father is actually home. The Father is what makes us feel at home. And it's ultimately what we're longing for. It's ultimately what, the fa- what Jesus came to do was to bring us back to this location where the Father lives, this place where He is. Some translations have used the word instead of rooms that the ESV uses, have used the word mansions. And I think it kind of perpetuates this misunderstanding that it's going to be this great place where I get to gratify all of my own longings of what I didn't get on earth. But what you're not getting on earth, that complete fulfillment in the Father, you're going to get from Him in relationship with Him, not so much the stuff of the place. You could think of it this way in putting it in earthly terms again. Would you rather live in a mansion wherever you choose maybe it's on the top of a mountain somewhere that you think has a great view and you could build this enormous beautiful mansion but you had to live the rest of your days in that alone or would you rather pick a small apartment in the middle of a busy city that is not really huge or what you've always dreamed of but you have a loving family surrounding you you'd probably choose the family right Because it's the people that make it amazing. It's the people that you want to be with. It's the Father that makes heaven amazing. And so when Jesus said he's he's going to go away to prepare a place, he's not saying he's going there with a hammer and nails to begin to construct this amazing mansion for you. But what he's saying is he's going away to prepare a place. In other words, he's going away to make a way for you to live with the Father. That's his preparation, that you could come into the Father's house. Some context helps here. You have to understand the setting of what Jesus is talking about. You see, in our day and age, when you get married, you move out and you go live on your own. Your family will start your own home. You're going to get out of your parents' house. In fact, we even encourage that, right? If you come to premarital counseling with me and you say you're going to live with mom and dad, it's like, come on, you really? Your parents don't want you there. Commentators, though, say this, just so you know, they don't, okay, if anybody's questioning. They say this. Jesus is not telling us that heaven has compartments or that we will have little places in which to live. In the ancient culture, a father's house was where the extended family lived. Do you get this? It's the extended family's abode. And so rooms were added on as the family grew through birth and marriage, and these homes grew larger and larger. And what Jesus was doing was using the present-day illustration of a loving, tight family community. 
And so Christ is saying that he's preparing a place for us in heaven where we will dwell with God in close communion with him and that there is a room, there's room in heaven for all whom God calls to salvation. Jesus is preparing room for you. Does that make sense? He's creating a space, a way for you to live in the Father's abode, in his home. That is amazing. <laughs> and what makes home great is who you're with, and that's the Father. Are you more excited about being with the Father, or are you more excited about the place? The Father makes it all worth it. And so Jesus was going to go, and we know he's gone now. He's died, he's resurrected, and he's ascended to heaven. And he is in that, preparing a place for us. He's made a way for us there. And it's his presence that makes it home. But Thomas, along with maybe us, doesn't quite get it. Remember doubting Thomas? He asked some good questions along the way. And he asked another good one right here in verse 5. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Because it didn't make sense. This, you're going to go away. What do you mean? How can we know the way? How do we get there? In other words, you're going to be gone. You're going to go back to the Father. And we want to be there too. So how do we get there? How can a person get to the Father? In other words, how can you get to the Father? How could you get to that place with Him? You know, when we're lost or disoriented or confused, we look for a direction to go. We search for a direction to go, and I think every person in the world does this. When you're lost, you're not going to just hunker down and stay there forever. You're going to figure out how to get out of there, especially if the situation is not good. And we find ways to cope, to press on, And this world is full of answers. In fact, even within ourselves, I think we begin to invent answers. And a lot of those answers are in reaction to things we've experienced in life, trying to piece together what we think we know, what we believe, or making up things that we believe. We might even listen to an outside voice that's going to press that on us. And so there are many ways that we, we work to try to come up with answers and direction. I thought of a few this week. One of those is for Christians especially, trying to earn our salvation with Jesus. Trying to earn our salvation with Jesus. You know, it may even, your journey may have even begun that way, this thought of listing off things like, hey, I was, I, I'm pretty much a good person. I've done more good. Do you know what I do in this community? Do you know how much I bring to this world? Other people list their heritage, their church attendance, their baptism, Maybe you've made bargains with God. If you do this, then I'll do this for you. And we begin to earn it in that sense. Or we may even have language that flirts with this concept of earning our salvation. We may use words like, I need to stay in good standing with Jesus. Or I need to pay him back for what he's done for me. I need to please him, which, yes, but we've got to be cautious with that, right? Right? Over time, we can begin to fall into this trap where grace is a concept, but we're not actually living as if grace is true in our life. In other words, you earned it. It's about you. There's also other ways we try to find ways to get direction. And another one of those I thought of was just finding a spiritual path. Wikipedia, (laughs) truth, yeah, is that uh, fake news or is that real? But Wikipedia says 4,200 religions exist in our world. 4,200, 4,200. 
Our world would tell us in a lot of different places that all of those routes lead to God. That they lead to a place of satisfaction, a place of of joy, of heaven. That they fulfill what God wants for us. Some of them even are a religion, but they deny God. But could it be that Jesus is exclusive like he says he is? In an Ravi Zacharias article, he quotes the poet Steve Turner, who brilliantly describes the confusion this brings. And he talks about how people think of religion. Jesus was a good man, like Buddha and Muhammad and ourselves. We believe he was a good teacher of morals, but we believe that his good morals are really bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation and sin and heaven and hell, God, salvation. (laughs) In other words, they disagree on every other thing, right? Even as Christians, I think at times we can begin to blend religion, taking bits and pieces of what we want from God, maybe even a little bit from over here, and putting that together. When we're disoriented, we're tempted to do that. And Jesus claims an exclusivity to salvation and truth in this passage. In Christianity, righteousness is given. In all other religions, righteousness is earned. But in Christianity, Jesus gives us his righteousness. We'll talk about that more later. So those are two. Maybe we also press forward this way. Ignorance is bliss, right? (laughs) If I just don't think about it, if I just don't go there with spiritual things, just be quiet, Christian. Stop talking. I hear that sometimes. I've heard people tell me not to talk about it anymore. Ignorance seems like bliss. Find ways to cope with our pain, to deal with the world. And sometimes, honestly, I like ignorance too, if I'm honest. I like to just ignore what's going on and what God might be calling me to and what his word is saying. Because I want to find the easiest path. Just get through today and ignore those things. Other times there's a willful decision to just completely deny the spiritual realm as if there is no spiritual life that exists outside of us. No God, no other anything. And so then we live for the here and the now We look for a place of identity in the world. We live for what we can get out of this place. Soothe our pain, get through. And if it is all there is, if this world is all there is, I can't blame a person for just living for the today. But what if they're wrong? What if that's wrong? What if Jesus is true and he's right? What if in him saying that there is a way, that he is the the path, the map that we can take, What if that is true? Left to ourselves, we're going to try to find an answer. My first job was at Little Caesars Pizza. (laughs) Yeah, pizza, pizza, right? I had to answer the phone and say that every time I answered the phone. I'm sure it sold a lot of pizzas by getting us to do that. I got some advice from a boss which was good in that job, but is bad advice when it comes to this. He said, when you don't know what to do, do something. (laughs) Find something to do. Wipe off the tables. Do whatever. Come up with an answer. 
I had another boss that once told me, and this is bad, is good advice maybe sometimes in a job, but bad advice spiritually. Act now and apologize later. And he, he did that a lot. Don't do that spiritually. What if there is a true answer? Jesus claims he has it. The truth is we will turn to ourselves and look for an answer, and Jesus describes himself as that. In Minnesota, our pastor there had a nice 30-foot sailboat that he used to take out on the lakes in that area. It was a lot of fun to go out on it. You could actually spend the night in it. He could have several guys out on it at a time. And he would anchor it in this lake that was rather shallow, but this is also the way you anchor a sailboat. You don't typically bring a sailboat into a dock and put it up against the dock because the, the uh, banging against the dock, especially when a storm comes, will damage it. You can't really lift it out of the water very easily. And so what you do is you anchor it to something steady out in the water. could be a rock that you tether to. It could be a stake that you have to drive deep down into the, into the bottom of the lake until you find solid ground. That's the path he took because there were no rocks to anchor to in this lake that he used. And so he went out with his friend whose, whose place this was where he stored his boat, and they put a long, long bar down into the ground and attached a tether to it, a rope to it, that went to the sailboat. And when the storms came and when wind would blow, that sailboat would move around. It would, it would just kind of go different directions depending on where the wind was blowing or how the waves were coming in. But that anchor always held. Jesus in this passage is beginning to describe himself like an anchor that will not move, that is going to be stable and it won't, the ethics of which won't move around. It's, it's, he's not going to be wishy-washy. He is stable and he's a rock and he's one we can hold on to in the midst of storms and in the midst of seeking truth in maybe a place of disorientation or lostness. Because when we don't have answers, we're going to look for them. And your answers are just as good as fake news. But Jesus does have answers. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, right? That's me. So if I long for home with my Father and I'm looking for a way, what is the answer? Jesus gave the answer in verse 6. He says a very powerful statement about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is declaring himself as the path home. The path home. This verse has usually been used as an apologetic verse, which means a defense of the faith, the Christian faith. And it's used appropriately as that because Jesus is making a definitive statement. He's using definitive articles about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life, meaning there is no other direction. But what we have done sometimes with this verse is it's been more of a closed door than it has an open door. And when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, they're in a place of disorientation and confusion and he's actually declaring an open door. That there is a way. That this is an invitation. Not a closed door to the world. This is a means, a method, a direction, the method 
to the Father. When we use that in life, I think we need to be careful to make sure we explain that verse that way because it's an amazing, beautiful, joy-filled verse when it's described that way rather than a, a sword that we use against people. And Jesus is a path to get there, a way, the way to get there. You know, you could think of it this way. Have you been in a city before where I haven't spotted one of these in Grand Junction. Maybe we have one. But when you have busy, big roads in a city, a lot of times the solution to helping pedestrian traffic get from one side to the other, rather than making you be frogger to get across where you're you're doomed to get wiped out, is to create a bridge up and over that. Across the hurdle, across the barrier. Do we have any of those in Grand Junction? Walking pedestrian bridges? We do. Okay, I I just haven't seen them yet. But think of Jesus as that bridge, that path to get from one side to the other. And when he says he is the way, the truth, and the life, those are not independent statements that should be just thought of just randomly. He's saying he's the way, and then we can look at he's the truth, and then the life. They build on each other. They build an order on each other. If we got the order wrong, we would be all mixed up. In fact, Think of it this way. When he says the way, it's going to be the path to grace. We'll talk about that in a second. But if he jumped right to truth and he said, I am the truth and then I am the way, we'd be looking only at earned salvation and then maybe discover grace. But grace has to come first and then truth, which reorients our life because it comes out of love for Christ. And then we find life when we are oriented to truth. And that's the point he's trying to make here. So the way, how is Jesus the way? Jesus is the only way to the Father. And he's saying that it's only through his perfection, it's only by perfection, sorry, that you and I may be saved. You know, one time Jesus was talking and he said, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You look around at your life and the only way to be saved is to be perfect and you would go, but I can't be. True statement. (laughs) You can't be. That's the point of why Jesus said that. You can't be. And so no matter how hard you try to meet God's standards of perfection, you cannot do it. You will never hit it. The Bible says that even all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. They're just tainted. They're stained by the rest of who we are. Our own righteousness is just simply not enough good. And it never will be no matter how hard we try. And what's unfortunate is some people end right there and they tune out at that point. How can God be good? But here's what's so good about God. Is that God does something that's called imputing his righteousness to us. The the word imputed righteousness carries this idea. That he ascribes or he attributes something to someone. He gives us what was his. What does he give us? His righteousness. He clothes you in righteousness, not that you walk in perfection in your life, but that the Father sees Christ's righteousness when he looks at you. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ right there. That he gives you his righteousness. And it's through his death and his perfect life that he can give that to you. First, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. You are saved and can be saved only because Jesus, as the way, gave his righteousness to you. It's amazing. It's a miracle. It's an only God could do it kind of thing. And we are the only religion on this planet that trusts the God to save us, not ourselves to bring salvation. Christ's righteousness imputed to us through faith. He not only teaches the way or points the way, he is the way. Not just a good teacher, he is the way. He's the truth. When he says he's the truth that follows the way, when I trust Jesus, he begins to bring truth into my life. And truth a lot of times hurts. Get used to it if you're a Christian and you find that constantly you're being corrected. It's how it is. Because the word of God comes to me, a sinner, a person who's trying to make up my own way, figure out my own path. It comes to me and it begins to correct me and it begins to put my life into the place that God wants it to be. And if he's creator, he has the right to declare that. And so you look at our mad world around us and the need for truth is very present because of all the chaos that we see. For example, have you noticed the racism going on in our world today? It's alive and well in the weeks. The last week's events have, have been a, just a grim reminder of the fact that racism is still alive. When I was a kid, I grew up with part of my life in Georgia, and I knew it was alive because I saw it there. But it's true in our world, not just in America, but in our world. And when people begin to look at Scripture or try to use Scripture to defend racism, it's a grave misunderstanding of what Scripture is declaring because God created all races for His joy. God m- brings life to all races. God saves all races. He wants the church and people to move in harmony and in unity. And so when we see racism in, the, in our world, and especially in the church, Christians, if we're racist, we're not going to enjoy heaven very much. Heaven's going to be full of the races, all the people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And that's to be celebrated in heaven. We can celebrate it now. The church is the answer to racism. The gospel is the answer to racism, not the government. We hold the answer. What a time to be alive. I am so glad that God has called us to be alive in this day because the black and white nature of of truth and lies. You know, other things this week. Did you see that article that came out about Iceland this week? When I first read the headline, I got excited because it said that in, in Iceland, they, had, they were basically seeing Down syndrome disappear. CBS News ran this story th- early in the week. And I was excited at first until I started to read the article. And then it grieved me. Because what's going on is prenatal tests to determine whether a child has Down syndrome. 80 to 85% of the women there choose that, which is okay. I think that's a possible route you can take. But what is grieving is that almost 100% of the women who get that test and have a positive diagnosis for a Down syndrome child terminate the pregnancy. And Iceland's celebrating this. Many European countries are not far behind and in some ways maybe not in America too. 
And as I continued to read the article, some of the statements in it just crushed me as I, as I read this. One of them said, this is your life. You have the right to choose how your life will look like. One of the counselors at the hospital where this reporter had been interviewing said, we don't look at abortion as murder. We look at it as a thing that we ended. We ended a possible life that may have had a huge complication, preventing suffering for the child and for the family. And I think that is more right than seeing it as murder. That's so black and white. Life isn't black and white. Life is gray. Brings confusion. Not looking at truth brings confusion to situations. The truth of Scripture declares all people as carefully molded by God and given by God. That God's image is planted in them. And scripture reorients us to see that. That those with disabilities are to be loved and cared for. That God can be glorified through that. That great joy can come through that. Is it hard for a family when that happens? Yeah. When they have a child that's born with a disability. But can God be glorified in it? You bet he can. Scripture brings truth. It could be that when I talk about that, for some of you that hits close because you've been in this spot. I want to remind you as I bring that up that I don't bring that up in condemnation because there's another truth about Scripture and it's called forgiveness. And that may be your past, but God looks to the future. And you hold on to that truth of forgiveness and healing and you let that go and you press on with the truth of Christ and changed view and changed stance on that. And so if that's you, I, I want to walk tenderly on that because I, I know that would be sensitive. But truth brings more. And maybe this one's a little more close to home. It's possible for us as believers to walk around in life walking in sin and yet come in on a Sunday morning and really want the warm fuzzy of worship. And I know that we bring in our sin because we're all sinners. But what I'm talking about is when we are not even allowing ourselves to be confronted with the issues of sin. That I could be content in my person to sleep with somebody outside of marriage. That a guy or woman could look at pornography and be fine with that. That we could walk in materialism day to day and then walk in not feeling any conviction or ever wanting conviction and just want the warm, kind side of Christianity. Truth confronts us. And we better get used to it, church. I want to get used to the confrontation, not the avoidance of confrontation from Scripture. I want to stand on Scripture, not an evolving ethic. I don't want to stand on shifting sands. And our world, I think, is standing on a lot of shifting sand. And it's going to lead to a bitter end. Scripture calls it a bitter gall when we drink deeply of sins. 
And we have truth to bring into situations because truth brings clarity to confusing situations. Truth brings clarity to confused cultures and people. Looking at untruth and multiple truths, the possibility of multiple truths brings chaos. It brings the falling apart of life and families and churches and societies. And Jesus talked about bringing truth and a wholeness and a clarity to things. His way is narrow. Matthew seven fourteen. but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. It's 2017. Do I really believe that there is an absolute truth? I do. I believe there is. Because if I'm going to look at Jesus, I'm not going to lucky pick from what I like about him or his teachings. I take his teachings as a whole, and either I take all of Jesus or I take none of Jesus. And I'm staking my life on taking all of Jesus. Is that you? Do you stake it all on him? The purpose of this book, John 20, 31, said, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is calling us to be a church where all chips are in. You put it all on the line to follow him as the way, the truth, and the life where all of your soul, sat, soul desires will be satisfied in him. Where being with him is the grandest thing in the world and bringing people along with you is the grandest thing that you could live for. Because only in the Father will you find the answers and satisfaction. You won't find them in the other category. You won't find them in the world, but you will find them in Christ. So do you find yourself today just a little bit disoriented, a little confused because he's away? Life maybe has shifted on you, has changed you're a little confused about the answers. The invitation is so simple. If Jesus is the way, just come to the cross. Just come to the cross and begin there again. That's Jesus' call to us. It's a gentle, it's a joy-filled invitation. Will you come? Jesus, <laughs> your words are so gentle they're so good. Even in confronting us, they're gentle. They're loving and truth-filled all at the same time. God, some people sitting in here are going through massive stuff that is just tough to figure out how to get through. All of us have had questions in our life. But you said all of those questions, all the orienting is found in you. God, our lives, our souls are at stake in this. We come to the cross simply kneeling down. The way, the truth, and the life.